This Knowledge at Wharton podcast was produced in conjunction with EY's Global Private Equity Center. For more information, please visit ey.com slash private equity. We're speaking today about private equity in Europe with Michael Rogers, and he is EY's Global Deputy Private Equity Leader, and also with Steve Samet, who is a senior fellow and lecturer here at Wharton. Uh, it's great to have you both back together with us here at Knowledge at Wharton. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve. We're going to look today at uh, private equity in Europe and what's been going on in the market there over the last couple of years and also looking ahead into the future somewhat. Uh, for the last 10 years, EY has been doing a lot of in-depth research on private equity in Europe and elsewhere also, but uh, in November of 2015, just a couple months ago, it released its annual report uh, on, on survey and other data for Europe's private equity market uh, through the end of 2014. So the data doesn't come out until the first quarter of 15, and then they do a lot of interviews. So it takes a while to compile all that. And then it, it was released at the end of 2015. The research covers all private equity investments above $165 million. Uh, between the years of 2005 to 2014. That's almost 1,200 new acquisitions and almost 700 exits. So very comprehensive material. Uh, one key highlight this year was the uh, record, I should say, for this is 2014 now, a key highlight was the record-breaking exit figures, and we're going to talk more about that in a moment. But I just wanted to ask each of you to very briefly um, explain to listeners, before we get into all of the results, uh, a brief explanation of how private equity in Europe differs from private equity in the U.S. What are, what are the headline points of comparison? Mike, maybe you can start for us. Okay. Well, thank you, Steve. I, I think there's a handful of, of differences uh, in the operating environment, environment that we see. And Europe is a little bit more regulated. Uh, they have new regulations, including AIFMD and some other uh, regulations that have been put in place to make sure that uh, how PE firms are marketed to is, is consistent and there's more uh, independence and, and uh, disclosure. Uh, we also see that, that the, uh, there's changes in terms of the size of deals. There's been a number of, of larger deals come out of Europe in recent years. But, you know, historically, you know, we've seen strength, you know, in the middle market in, in Europe, and that, that really came out in 2014 as well. Uh, the you know, U.S. has gotten, you know, a little bit. Uh, the big have gotten bigger, and in, and in Europe, we've seen the resurgence of the uh, the middle market players in Europe as well. Uh, and I think the secondary bar buyout market is a little bit different uh, as well. Um, you know, deals in Europe, uh, you know, they're, they're different than what they've been in the U.S. They've lost some popularity uh, on the secondary market uh, from LPs pushing back a little bit on that. But for the most part. Uh, the industry is the same. They're talking about taking good companies and making them better through balance sheet optimization and uh, improved governance. So uh, not terribly number of differences, but uh, there are some unique aspects. Steve, from your perspective. I, I, I see it, uh, by and large, the, the same way. Uh, just drilling down a little bit into the structure of the funds, the operation of the funds, and the way the funds are staffed. Uh, while this still very much is a, a financial enterprise uh, in, in Europe, uh, the funds oftentimes are populated with people with somewhat more operating experiences than you find in the United States. 
uh, which gives them a wider breadth of, of opportunities to look at in terms of basic uh, businesses. And also the, the kinds of businesses that are available for, um, uh, uh, for acquisition. Uh, uh, there's probably, and Mike, you might have data on this, but I suspect there's probably more activity in terms of corporate spinouts as sources for deal opportunities than there might be in the United States. Yes, I mean, just to add along to that, I think the carve-out business is, is thriving in Europe. And, and also, just from a structure perspective, Steve touched on, in the U.K., we, we do tend to see a lot of the funds tending to operate out of the U.K. and so in, you know, heading on to the continent from the U.K. So there's some structural differences to where the funds set up, uh, as Steve mentioned as well. All right, Mike, so uh, if you would, could you take us briefly through the sort of headlines of the report, the top key findings? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's interesting. It's a very active year, 2014, and I think the main thing we saw was that the stronger European economy really led to a lot of the opportunity here to uh, to you know get the exits out the door. And so we saw record-breaking exits, uh, but at the same time, you know, PE was really de- demonstrated a lot of discipline in terms of how they approached the market and what they did. Uh, we've noted on these calls before that the the hold periods extended out. Uh, and this was a window of opportunity to allow many of uh, those those funds uh, to uh, you know go to the exit markets and be well received in those markets. Uh, it is a very competitive year in the marketplace from PE, uh, and and it just happened to be the sort of the right combination of aspects that really opened up the opportunity. Uh, there were 29 IPOs on 10 different exchanges uh, in Europe during this period, which uh, was was very strong. Uh, and then they were faced, though, with you know corporate buyers. Competition was up, so many of the trade, uh, many of the sales, they ended up in the trade market as well. So those those exits were up as well because corporate uh, corporates in Europe had an appetite for many of the entities that that PE was selling. Uh, they uh, certainly created value for their investors this during this period, and and really were able to roll out almost 16% of the portfolios entry value was exited in 2014 so you can see really how strong it was this is it's really secondly secondarily only to 2006 uh, and so we've worked through a lot of that overhang Steve that we've talked about in the past and new investments were up which was a big number uh, major increase in, in businesses acquired from corporations uh, increase from you know 24 to 44 during that same period so we're we're seeing that active carve-out space that, that uh, Steve touched on, uh, and, and there were uh, you know, 49 new purchases from PE. So uh, very much an opportunity to take advantage of, of the markets and, and just hit it at the right time, and it allowed uh, for the, the PE funds to really uh, release some of that overhang and uh, you know, find a very, very nice pocket of return for their investors during that period. Uh, just so everyone knows, the name of that report is Forging Ahead, how do private equity investors create value? A study of 2014 European exits, and I believe that's available without a fee from the EY website. Uh, so, so that's it's all very interesting. Um, I'm also wondering. So, uh, I noticed that uh, from the report that corporate sales were a, a big part of the picture, um, but there weren't so many corporate buyers. You, you were talking about this, and in, in, in terms of. Uh, uh, Steve, uh, about how that's one difference between the U.S. Perhaps well, is that is that what was showing up in the numbers? Well, I, I think what was showing up in the numbers is uh, uh, that uh, 
in terms of exit opportunities, that there was perhaps wider international participation, especially from North American uh, corporations uh, seeking to buy European assets from private equity funds. That, that more, was more so than would be typical? More so. Uh, ba based on the, the, uh, the report, uh, the way I read it, yes, more so than would be typical. And that may actually be a long-term trend. Uh, uh, and it, it's certainly a signal that uh, the European market has become attractive to uh, North American corporations uh, for perhaps a variety of reasons. Uh, there may be a sense of uh, perhaps stability or maturity that's there. Um, uh, the, um, uh, in terms of participation uh, uh, by Europe, existing European companies, what I was referring to was that um, many of them are restructuring, uh, reconfiguring their operations, uh, and are s deciding to divest uh, certain operating units. And these, these have found their way into the deal flow, the private equity funds uh, operating in Europe. Uh, whenever this happens, it's, it's actually a, a, f a fairly good sign uh, because those, those spin-outs, uh, as it were, uh, or, or divestitures, basically come with uh, fairly mature, sophisticated management systems in place, operating units in place, manufacturing systems, uh, and supply chain management uh, lar largely intact. So the uh, opportunity to build value on that by the private equity funds is very strong. Um, I have to think back now to 2014, and I'm wondering, was the value of the euro a big factor? In other words, were European companies cheap for American companies? Was that, was that perhaps part of it? Uh, the, uh, the, report, the report suggests that. Uh, in point of fact, uh, the, the, the euro, uh, although ha did not have a dramatic slide rel relative to previous years, European assets were cheaper from the point of view of the American dollar. So that uh, that probably contributed, uh, and may have may have provided, if not an impetus, certainly the bandwidth to to pay a little bit more or be, or to bid more competitively. Um, Mike, you you referred earlier to, um, and and this has been an ongoing theme for private equity for, since the financial crash, the the overhang in the market uh, since two thousand eight, uh, and uh, have we in fact caught up? By now, here, here at the end of 2015, early 2016, um, is it uh, you know is is the market now kind of more in balance or is it in balance? Yeah, I think we definitely are. Uh, the it's interesting that that what's happened. Uh, there was a period of time when the LPs, uh, when, when there was a sense of almost a, a lack of liquidity in private equity for for some window of time, and we had heard about. You know, from our studies, we knew in, in, in many markets, for example, the, the traditional hold times of, you know, three and a half years or so, three, three and a half years, had stretched out to four and a half, even up to as high as five, and in some markets over five for average number of years of hold. And so that was giving the LPs a little bit of pause in terms of, uh, you know, is there some concern about you know me getting my money back? It, people want redemptions at the funds. There's you know obviously there's there's uh, 
you know, certain timelines that they have to invest, things of that nature. So there was definitely this pull of LPs making noise of the fact that we'd like to, uh, you know, get some return on the money. Uh, that turned pretty quickly around this time frame. Uh, 14 was, was really a solid year in terms of the exits, and what it did was it turned the LPs from a position where they were possibly, uh, you know, liquidity short to being, you know, long liquidity, if you will. A lot of money got returned because, obviously, when you sell these businesses, that cash is coming back to the LPs. They took that money back in. Uh, it didn't take them long, honestly, to turn around and say, well, what are we going to do with this money? We're still maybe a little bit underinvested in terms of alternatives, so take it back. And, you know, so new funds were created uh, and new opportunities to put that money to work were, were, were you know, created as well. And so we, we've gone back. Uh, I guess it's, the, you know, it's very fickle, right? When you don't think you can get your money back, folks generally want their money back, and, 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 you know, and the opposite is true, right? So uh, when they think that there's op- opportunity for investment, then, of course, they want to be long. And so we, we kind of went through that period. I think what PE did was demonstrated that, look, you know, the opportunity to take the illiquidity risk with us benefits you because we didn't have to sell out in weaker periods. We held until the optimal moment, and then we're able to exit, achieve the returns, return your capital, free up liquidity, and now we're ready to go do it again. So I think, if anything, that may have been a positive uh, for the industry. But at the time, you know, as you point out, there were some folks that were uh, wringing their hands and thinking, you know, I uh, may like to see some return of capital here. Uh, but that certainly has sort of pivoted back the other way. I, I agree uh, entirely with uh, what um, Mike has had to say. Uh, and I take it one step further to um, um, point out that I'm, I'm not sure that over, a capital overhang is as much an issue under any more in any market as it as it as it once was and the reason is we've become much more accustomed for, to year to year volatility uh, and the and the expected holding periods now really vary there's there's no predictable three to four year window so a, as a result uh, many of these investments which were growth equity investments uh, uh, in addition to being uh, buyouts uh, ba- basically needed to have that uh, cash and reserve, that dry powder. Uh, uh, so what might seem like uh, too large an inventory of uh, callable cash uh, could uh, very quickly reverse itself. So um, I, I, I suspect that concern about this particular issue may cool off, for at least for this new cycle. Uh, another trend... Uh, Notable in the study, I thought, was that uh, often the buyers of the uh, private equity uh, portfolio companies were other private equity companies. And uh, so um, tell us, Mike, what, what's behind that? Uh, is the, it's, you, you, sa- you said they were, they were selling companies and then they would take the cash and turn around and, and buy different companies. Is this just a reshuffling or how does that, how does that create – how does that work from the value creation uh, standpoint? Well, you know, the secondaries have always – been more popular in Europe, likely because there's a smaller pool of large, high-quality assets than we see in the U.S. So for PE firms, you know, buying assets from other PE firms makes a lot of sense in certain situations. They're receiving a company that has seen a significant amount of operational improvement, which uh, you know is, is now ready to be taken 
you know, the improvements in governance and balance sheet, et cetera, but the new buyers are able to step up and in, 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 in take it to another level. Uh, they know they've gotten an asset that's, that's had some private equity folks pouring over it, uh, but now they can you know, make their own mark on the company in terms of specific operator expertise or value add. And some of the ways we see that done is, is uh, clearly on the you know, efficiency side and profit process improvement and on the cost side in terms of taking costs out of your supply chain and uh, maybe other headcount issues or other simplicities that they can you know, run the business through to, to make it uh, more efficient. But I think that the new trend these days is trying to find ways to expand the revenue footprint. And so uh, I think PE in Europe likes the fact that they buy these entities that have had you know, some professionalization from another private equity fund and that they can, you know, by instilling maybe more capital or more management talent, you take that business to the next level, uh, try and, uh, you know, expand maybe the products uh, or the geographies to, uh, you know, take it to a next level on a global basis, maybe begin to sell around the world, maybe to you know, devise more of a, uh, you know, Internet strategy, whatever it may be, to enhance revenue. So that, that's been sort of a mantra in Europe. They, they definitely, uh, the funds like buying from other funds, and they like the, uh, the stepping up game, if you will, in terms of trying to add your value and move the, the product along. Oh, interesting point. Thank you. Yeah, Steve. no, uh, th that's, um, that, of course, makes a lot of sense. Uh, there's, there's one thing else to bear in mind as well. We, we talk about Europe as if it is a country, and although it's far more unified than it was uh, 30 or so or 40 years ago, uh, it is still it is still a confederation of countries with dramatically different um, economies and rates of growth and demographics, uh, and the, the the opportunity for a portfolio company once it's reached a level of stability um, um, uh, as the result of the, say the first go around of private equity. Uh, may well be uh, very well positioned now to expand into other European markets, which are effectively local or not as dramatic as, say, entering Brazil uh, from, uh, uh, from the Netherlands. Uh, uh, so um, I, think, I think it's this diversity of, of, the, of the economies of Europe that actually provides a lot of opportunity to make uh, uh, form good investment hypotheses uh, for, a, for a secondary buyer. Listeners can access past podcasts plus additional insights into private equity at our private equity website. And the address is kw.wharton.upenn.edu slash private hyphen equity. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.